This podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Go to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check out the THN Patreon page to become a monthly supporter. And Omaha Bound. No one has more experience binding comic books into beautiful hardbound editions. Check out their work at OmahaBound.com. Thanks to Omaha Bound and stay tuned for an announcement about their Kickstarter for Paul Tobin and Phil Hester's Fringe series from Caliber Comics collected for the first time. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the quarantine ziggurat at Omaha, deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 590 of the Two-Headed Nerd comic book podcast. We don't make those numbers up. We have done this 500 and 90 goddamn times. That's not even close to accurate. We've done this closer to 1,000 times. See, now Joe likes to you know, inflate those numbers. You understand that we have two shows, right? Uh, you know. And that we've renumbered more than once? I get it. I get it. You're just freaked out because Detective 1027 came out this week, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But for <laughs> now, my name is Matt Bob. Uh, and I'm the Internet's Joe Patrick, and this week we're reviewing a pile of comics from this and last new Comic Book Wednesdays. After that, it's up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum to discuss our must-read picks for next week. And finally, comic historian Jason Sachs is here to talk about just who the hell is Ultraman. So load up your K-Ray guns and set them to kill Kaiju because it is review time in the Ziggurat Nerds. This week, our new pile is stocked full of undead tough guys. Batman's 1,000th birthday. Pretty sure that's Bill how and that Ted's, works. What's that? I'm pretty sure he's, that's how it works. He's been around for 1,000 yeah, years. 1,000 yeah. years, yeah. <laughs> yes. Bill and Ted's doom and, of course, Marvel's new Ultraman. Matt, let's start with our titles from Wednesday, September 9th, shall we? We shall. And I will be starting with The Rise of Ultraman, number one from Marvel. Kyle Higgins and Matt Groom have culturally co-opted Ultraman and brought him to Marvel with art by Francesco Mana, also Calm not Japanese, down, so he's guilty too, I guess. <laughs> Marvel is bringing Ultraman, Japan's beloved giant cosmic kaiju fighter, to the States, and all the old hits are here. The USP, who is a secret science force, the battles monsters and aliens, all manner of classic monsters, and of course, Ultraman. Now. There's been some complaints that Ultraman doesn't show up until the end of the book. Well, this is an introduction, so I didn't have a problem with it. And guess what? Ultraman, not the main character in Ultraman. So shut up, hater guy. There's a couple of one-page funnies that also feature Piggymon, a flower monster that's smarter than he appears, and a backup story featuring Ultra Q, which was the predecessor to Ultraman on Japanese TV. Think X-Files but with more monsters. Not necessarily giant, but monsters. Higgins and Groom are just perfect to tell this story, and they do a wonderful job maintaining the feel of the original Ultraman show. Mana's art is amazing and reminds me of what I love about Stuart Immerman. The Ultra Q backup by Higgins and Groom was also great, and I would argue that it kind of stole the show here. Michael Cho's kitschy Darwin Cook-style art set with like that sepia tone kind of black and white thing still gave it a very 60s feel. I loved this book. I love the fact that Marvel's taking this chance, and they've teamed with Subara to bring Ultraman to the States. I'm giving this a buy it, and I'm begging you 
please buy this so it doesn't get canceled. <laughs> this is a cool idea and it's super fun. Please go buy it. <laughs> I mean, just so you know, sepia means brown. So you mean more like monochrome. Yeah, I guess. Well, but it was still like very like grayish, okay, like, bluish tone. Sepia means brown. I'll stop talking. I apologize. Yeah, you, thank you. you. <laughs> so, yeah, it's monochrome in the same way that like uh, Day Tripper was where it's like black and white with like a spot color. Uh, and yeah, it's beautiful. The Ultraman, the main story is super fun. The Michael Cho story is. He's just great. Awesome. He's so talented. Uh I will argue that uh, by the end of this book, even after Matt Baum tried to explain to me what Ultraman is, I still did not understand what Ultraman is. You're not necessarily supposed to yet. You're going to find out. Uh, but the thing is, is that you told me what Ultraman is. He's an alien. I thought it was a guy in a suit. No, he is an alien and a guy bonds with him and they okay. become Ultraman. Ah, Ultraman's okay. like the Phoenix Force. Think of it. All like right. The Phoenix okay. Force. There you go. Like the Phoenix Force. Yeah. Thank you. That's the, all the, that's the context I needed. There you go. Um, yeah. I enjoyed this a lot. I didn't really mind that uh, the whole Ultraman thing didn't happen until the last minute. I will say this. Uh, they spent the majority of the main story trying to convince us that uh, the woman was the main character. Yes. And I'm kind of upset that they didn't have the guts to make her Ultraman. <laughs> well, you'll again, there's a reason. She's going to be kind of the brains behind the outfit uh, type thing. You know thing. what? The guy could be the brains behind the outfit. Uh, you'll see. All right. You'll see. Yeah, that's fine. But you know what? I did like this. I'm giving it a buy it. Uh, I just want to say in advance as we uh, get into these reviews, thank you to Matt Baum for picking Four of the longest comic books. Why don't you wait until we get there? <laughs> that then came out up. in the last two weeks. <laughs> Ultraman was exercised. Detective Comics. Detective Comics was the length of a trade paperback. I didn't know it was 144 pages when I started reading. And I kept reading and reading <laughs> and reading. And then I was reading some more. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> uh, yes. I mean, but this was very good. I'm giving it a buy it as well. You can you can definitely tell that the people involved love. They Ultraman. love it. They absolutely and they did the whole. That's what I love most. They didn't try to grossly Americanize it, or no, no, or like bringing it like, oh yeah, Ultraman. And it's a story of an inner city kid who likes to skateboard and like loves him some Dairy Queen, bro. No, it's you very know? Like, it's very firmly rooted in yes. you know Japanese culture or whatever. First up for me is represent number one. This was a digital first. Uh, pro I mean, probably a digital only comic from DC. Jules, a black teenager somewhere in the USA, is given a pair of old binoculars as he heads out for a morning of bird watching in Central Park. He soon learns that the binoculars show him a lot more than birds as they give him glimpses of the real life murders of people of color at the hands of police. I was not expecting this to be so real uh christian cooper writes the story and if that name sounds familiar it should cooper is the former marvel staffer that was subjected to racial threats while bird watching earlier this year for some reason bird watching got flagged as being misspelled once but not the second time really? <laughs> so i'm not huh. sure why uh with the help of uh, artist aletha martinez cooper turns his experience into both a cautionary tale and a touching memorial to the lives of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and more. Represent number one, 
is a deeply moving emotional story that pulls no punches. And it's a must read for anyone needing to educate themselves about the systemic racism, the institutional racism that plagues this country. This book made me cry. It's 16 pages and it made me cry. It's available digitally for free. There are no excuses. I'm giving this a huge buy it. So I didn't pick this one. And it's not because I disagree with the movement or you anything like it. that. Uh-huh. I didn't want to review it because I didn't love it. And the reason I didn't love it is not because the message is not important or the person that's telling the story does not have the right to tell the story. They, by all means, they do. And I agree with 100% of this. I just didn't need the super binoculars. You know, it, it, it came off. Well, I mean, it's a metaphor. Man. I get it, but it came off a little cheesy. And I think if had we just given like the real friggin' story or like what went through his head and stuff like that, I think it would have been a little more effective. And, and when they, it's, it's well done, perfectly executed. And it gets the point across. I just didn't. I, I mean, I hear you, man. Blue lives matter, right? I, I didn't need that. Stop that. Don't you I dare. get it. I hear you. I get it. I, I see where you're coming look, from. I didn't like the cops way before it was cool to not like the cops. All right. <laughs> No, I mean, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. I just the, didn't need the super binoculars I mean, it's thing. A, it just, it's a comic book. It's a DC yeah, comic book. And I get why they want to you know, do that. They're approaching it from they're approaching it from the perspective of a comic book. Yes. And I get why they want to do world. that and where they were coming from. I just, I just, it just comes off as a little bit cheesy. And I think But this, I also think that it worked with the ending. It, I'm not saying it where didn't. he sees, you know, uh, I mean, fucking fuck it. Spoilers, I guess. Yeah. Where he sees, you know, the angels of these. Sure. And people, I, I, it just came off. I just wish for me, I think it would have been more effective had it been more down to earth and more in your face. And it can come off as a fairy tale when you start injecting stuff like angels and magic binoculars into it. This is too important of a subject for what is going on right now. I would have just liked it to be a little more grounded. I'm giving it a, I'm, I'm giving it a buy it because it is an important message. I just wish it was more grounded. That's all <laughs> I'm saying. Is, you coward. You know, that's all coward. I'm saying. No, I mean, I understand. I understand. It's, yeah. it's, that's it. It's, it's certainly a, uh, it almost comes off like kind of hallmark card when you start doing stuff like that. It's an interesting tactic. It's yes. an interesting place to start to kick off the story from. Right. Um, but I mean, if I guess where I came down on it was if viewing it through this more fantastical lens gets more people to understand. Sure. By all means, I totally agree. I just think for me as a reader, I would have liked to see just a little more grounded. That's all. Sure. Let's move to this week or no, sorry. It's my second one from last week. It's my second review from last week. I picked Ice Cream Man Presents Quarantine Comics, the one shot from Image, which also turned out to be pretty damn long. Here's your creative team. Ice Cream Man creators W. Maxwell Prince and Martin Morazzo give us an anthology with a ton of talent behind it, including Declan Shavley, Al Ewing, Christopher Cantwell, and a bunch of other people that all lend their talents to this book that was created at the height of the lockdown during the COVID pandemic. All these stories first appeared as stories on quarantinecomics.com as an exercise to keep these creators sane while work was limited. 
The stories vary from tales of internal paranoia, examinations on the world outside the window, a creation story featuring the ice cream man as a snake that first gave Eve a taste of dessert that was excellent, to a nightmarish version of Animal Crossing meets the Wicker Man. And in each story, the ice cream man sort of pops up in some ways. He's a character sometimes, other times just a little tiny thing, but he's always there. While not all the stories are gold, there is a lot to love here. There's some very personal stuff, some very solid humor, and some disturbing ruminations balanced with complete absurdity. Even though this is a collection of stories that doesn't focus on the COVID pandemic, you can feel the angst and real-world paranoia in every story, whether it's the gathering of different mics meeting at the end of their life or a ridiculous take on Green Lantern that fights for the cause of tooth decay. This was a wild ride and an anthology that could only be born of the amazingly bizarre situations that we find ourselves in every day right now. I'm giving this a huge buy it. It was just cool. And you could tell that this just started as an exercise they decided to print. And it opens with this thing that says, yes, this was a digital comic. But you know what's better than digital comics? Floppy comics. So thank you for buying this. And I was like, (laughs) kick ass. I didn't buy it. I'm reading digital preview, but (laughs) right on (laughs) giving it a buy it. Yeah. You know, I thought this was pretty good. Uh, You know, I never read any of the other ice cream man comics before. It's wacky. Uh, I know that it's sort of like a horror or black mirror esque anthology. Yeah. Uh, And you know, this, it, it like, it was weird. It was interesting. You know, some of it was chilling. Some of it was just kind of bonkers and 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 fun and and uh, uh, unique. I really like uh, the Al Ewing Animal Crossing thing, where it's like, we need the your Animal help. Crossing thing was hilarious <laughs> for for our Apple Festival, and it's like, okay, yeah. that doesn't seem like good like, farming, but all right. <laughs> speaking as speaking as someone that used Animal Crossing as a drug to get them through uh, quarantine, yeah, the Animal Crossing story was really funny. Um, but yeah, this was a ton of fun. Uh, it's very long. It's long. Um, but you know, Hey, it's, it's just a, it's a good time. Uh, the stories are, are varied. The, uh, art, uh, across the board is pretty decent. Yeah. Uh, the main artist, Martin, Martin Marazzo is really great. Uh, you may have seen his work on books like, um, she could fly. Uh, he did great Pacific, uh, from image. Uh, she could fly. was from dark horse, uh, which I think was also written by Christopher Cantwell, if I'm not mistaken. Um, that could be true, but yeah, I thought this was really fun and I'm giving it a buy it. Uh, the ice cream man is really gross. Some far out <laughs> shit. It's <laughs> a good time. Uh, that, that Adam and Eve story was, uh, it was great. Was really something. It was uh, great. So yeah, it's a little long, $5.99, packed full of content. There you go. It's one of those things that's going to like be a comic book of its time as well. You'll be able to revisit this and you'll be able to remember like how fucking weird this pandemic was. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like these shows that are coming out now that it's like love during the time of Corona and all that all that stuff where it's like, okay, I mean, and that new hilarious NBC show where everybody's on like a zoom meeting. Oh God. Fuck you. Is that a thing? Yep, I don't know what that is. It's a thing. Ugh. No, no, thank you. All right. My last review from last week is bill and Ted are doomed. Number one from dark horse. 
20 years ago and nine years after their bogus journey, Bill and Ted are still struggling to create the song that will unite the world. Not only is the future in doubt, but their princess brides are worried about real life concerns, especially now that they have young children. Evan Dorkin's script is cute and clever, right in line with the movies. And all your favorites are here, like Death and the Robots, Rufus and Station. But the real draw of this comic is the phenomenal art by Roger Langridge. That guy, I swear to God. He can do whatever he wants. I just like he can literally do whatever he wants and make it look like anybody he wants it to look like. (laughs) He does a very specific thing. Like you wouldn't want him drawing Batman or Superman or whatever, but his cartooning style captures the essence of the characters without worrying about likenesses. The art is full of background gags and the coloring is wonderfully vibrant. There's a reason that he was the go-to guy when they started putting out those Muppet comics. Yeah. Like he's just, he is an exceptional cartoonist or when they wanted him to work on Popeye or they wanted like the guy can literally do anything he wants for sure. Bill and Ted are doomed. Isn't exactly groundbreaking work. And I can't really see it bridging the gap to the newest film because it does take place 20 years in the past. Right. But it's also a lot of fun. It's great to look at. I'm giving it a buy it. I, I really like this. And I love when Evan Dorkin works on bill and ted books i am a little upset that dorkin didn't draw this one just because i love evan dorkin's art well yeah but i love I mean, what he does and i wish it would have been a nice cap to his bill and ted trilogy if you will <laughs> but that's like saying you know i really really wanted a great you know t-bone steak but i got this delicious ribeye steak instead no i mean sure yes and no but dorkin wrote it i just wish he could have drawn it too that's all i'm saying giving it a bite it was fun Taking the money right out of Roger Language's hands. He's got kids to feed. He's going to be fine. Kids to feed. Let's move on to this week. My first review for this Wednesday, September 16th, is Heavy, number one from Vault. It's written by Max Bemis with art by Eric. He spells it with a Y, so you have to say it weird. Donovan and Colors. Pretty sure you can just say Eric. I can't. With Colors by Chris Peters. I mentioned the Colors because we're going to talk about that in a minute. Bill was a normal guy who watched his wife die and swore revenge, but unlike the Punisher, Bill died too. Now he finds himself in a limbo-like existence called The Big Wait, where he accepts jobs killing sleazebags across time and space while trying to earn his way into heaven where his wife is waiting. Bemis doesn't waste any time here with his script. He drops you straight into Bill's insane existence as he flies through time and space to kill an evil version of Leonardo da Vinci. The story moves at a video game intro pace, but it's so packed. There's with so many dicks. Curse so words. Many dicks in this comic. Nudity and violence that the story quickly loses any heart it had. Donovan's art is excellent and it keeps up very well with the pace of the script. I can't say enough about Peter's blacklight influence colors, but the script just didn't do anything for me. It was shocking just to be shocking, and it tried too hard to be clever without ever really being funny. There were guns, there were guts, a ton of dicks, and a shitload of cussing, but not much heart or humor here. I'm giving this a skim it because I feel like it was just a mishmash of pop culture, action movie bullshit, shock you know shock moments to be shocking and it just didn't do much for me at all i can't give it more than a skim it yeah um so 
my feeling was that uh, it needed to pick one or the other. Mm-hmm. It needed to be serious or it needed to be funny. And it kind of failed at both. Yeah, or be serious and tell there's a funny moment. Or be funny until there's a serious moment. Yeah, no, moment. I, like you can have funny moments in a serious story. Right. But this, it was just like, oh man, yeah, he's an afterlife assassin tasked with keeping the multiverse or the... the 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 uh, Time. alternate timelines. That's the other thing. Like I'm not going even wrong. really sure. Like what was it? The multiverse was it alternate? No, no. Like I got the like I got the premise. Like it's alternate timelines, and okay. they're like because they talk about like I've got 27 Hitlers to smother in yeah, their beds before that's breakfast. True. That's true. So you know, like I got it, but I feel like it wanted to be kind of outrageous, like a Garth Ennis, yeah, project, and it just. Did not get there. Uh, the art. Eric Donovan is a great artist, and I remember really enjoying his work on Mimetic. Yeah. But I feel like there was something about this art that it was less defined. You know it what? was more loose. You're not wrong. There were some panels. And I'm not sure I loved it as much. There were some panels that were really impressive and came off really cool. There were other panels that looked kind of rush. And point of view was a little weird. Like there's one specifically where they're showing like this large view of the, the big weight or whatever, where they live. And there's like yeah, yeah. walking out of this large building and there's another building in the background and there's a path that goes all the way through and people all over the place. But the building in the background kind of looked like it was just like dropped in and sandwiched there. And the point of view was off and you know, yeah, yeah. like maybe he's just not really good at, there's things that he is good at and they're highlighted here in this book. But it also maybe seems like he was trying to do some things that he's not great at. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, so I, I, I'm with you. I'm giving it a skim it, not because I didn't like it, but because I thought that it could have been executed better. I wanted to like it more than I did. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I agree that like, uh, like I love the premise. I think the premise is great. Oh yeah, definitely. I just think that you know it, the the tone was kind of all over the place and not in a great way. Yeah, and like again. I don't care. Nudity. I'm fine with it. I cuss like a sailor. I get it. I didn't care about any but of that. You can do it in an intelligent way where it serves things and, and moves the story a little bit. This was just like every character was like, fuckity fuck fart, you fuck fart ass shit bag. You know, like, okay, come on. Like that, you know, that's the exact, <laughs> that's the exact complaint I have about late nineties, Kevin Smith. Yeah. Where it's like, you know what? I don't care about cussing. I'm fine. Right. But when I watch Chasing Amy, I'm like, what are you trying to prove right. with all of these fucks? Yeah, it, it, it becomes like, it goes past, there's an art to it's cussing. It's not organic. Yeah, there's an art to cussing, if you will, and there's people that do it really well. George Carlin, right. who was in a bunch of different Kevin sure. Smith stuff, for yes. example, cussed like a master. And you can tell when someone's forcing it and it feels like Bemis is really forcing it, felt, it here yes, right, exactly. to make his character yeah. seem more like edgy or hard. And it just yeah, makes tough. Him, and it just reminds me of like the Harley Quinn cartoon that I don't care that much about because it's just you're like, wrong about the Harley Quinn cartoon forcing it too much. Maybe it is. I, I quit after the third one. So maybe. Oh, no, it's so it. good. <laughs> Uh, but yes, no, I, I, I totally I totally agree with that. Like there's a there's a line between having characters curse in a way that feels natural Mm -hmm. and true to their true to what would be their own, their, uh, their actual dialogue. Right. And 
cursing that just feels forced because you can do it. Yeah. I mean, look at the way Garth Ennis writes Butcher and the boys. That is, he is a filthy, foul mouthed monster, but it works. It sure. Totally and, you know, works. not to in like same thing, like not to invoke Warren Ellis, but Spider Jerusalem. Totally. Transmet. Absolutely. Like, like it's there's a reason why these characters it, it makes sense for them to talk the way they do right um it doesn't feel anyway. fake I mean, we got you guys get it we're yeah. kind of belaboring the yeah. point so we'll move on we're just like i'm not prude i swear i'm not prude no like that's fucking <laughs> look hey fuck any fuck fuck you fucks <laughs> yeah I cuss all the time i'll fuck anything <laughs> that's right <laughs> all right my first review from this week is iron man number one from Marvel Comics. It's written by Christopher Cantwell. Tony Stark is going back to basics. He's trying to shed his high profile image and put all of the bizarre virtual nanotech nonsense behind him and suit up in some real metal. But as an old friend is quick to point out, it is nearly impossible for Tony to set his ego aside that easily. Uh, as I said, Halton Catch Fires, Christopher Cantwell is the new series writer, and he did more to get me reinvested in Iron Man than previous writer Dan Slott did in his entire run. Yeah, I would argue he did it in the first four pages. Yes. It's fun to watch Tony struggle. It's really fun. And to be put in his place. And it's even more fun to see classic Iron Man staples like the briefcase armor and cheesy villains like the unicorn back in action. Cafu's art is like, I cannot remember the last time I saw the unicorn. Uh, maybe he was in like the 42 jail in the civil war or something. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so my theory is this. Uh, do you remember Rick Remender's run on the Punisher where the hood brought back all those shitty villains from the dead? Oh yeah. Yeah. And I'm wondering if he was in there somewhere. Maybe. And or that was the last time we saw Maybe him. he was in the issue where the Punisher went to the bar and slaughtered all the bad guys. Yes, yeah, exactly, <laughs> right. Cafu's uh, art is really stunning. And it's thanks in large part to the beautiful colors by Frank Diamarda. Darmata. I think it's just Darmata. Frankie boy. Yeah. Iron Man number one felt like a great place to come back to the character. And it doesn't matter if you haven't read the series in years it's a huge buy it. I really enjoyed it. So Christopher Cantwell is a super talented dude that is writing comics solely because he loves these characters. He loves comics. He makes enough money working in Hollywood that he does not need to do this. And I'm not trying to like take away from the job of comic writer. I would kill to be a comic writer. Okay. But he has this wonderful understanding of what makes the characters great. And if you read his Dr. Doom comic that he's also writing, you'll totally understand what I'm saying. And I honestly think that DC is going to come to a point real quick here with Batman where they're going to have to do something similar and say, all right, we've gone too berserk. This is too crazy. We have to boil the character back down. And that's exactly what Cantwell is doing. And the, just a fight in the beginning with Terax where oh yes he's he's beating him up he's monitoring the the stock market he's talking to another friend about an old car (laughs) he wants to buy he's he's like on twitter getting trolled flying terax into space and terax looks at him and goes who are you talking to (laughs) yeah (laughs) he's basically having like a a, that bluetooth conversation as he walks around the mall you know (laughs) like looking right at you but not talking to you and it's this perfect 
understanding of this is Tony Stark. He is an ADD freak with a huge ego and an amazing IQ. He this, he can't help it, and he's trying to figure it out. This was wonderful, and the art is amazing. Cafu is one of those people that just keeps improving on their style, and I can't believe how good this guy is. I, and I, sometimes the colors can do a thankless job in a comic book. Yeah, definitely. Like, they're there. You don't notice them unless they're bad. Yeah. Sometimes, though, the coloring is so exceptional that you are like, whoa. Right. And I thought Frank D'Armada's colors in this issue were gorgeous. I think Frank D'Armada is like one of those guys that is the only reason he doesn't have more Eisners is because he's just like exists in the wrong time. <laughs> you know? Like yeah, it's he, like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you live in a world where uh, Dave Stewart is right. one of your contemporaries. Like you're just as good. <laughs> like you really yeah. are, but I'm sorry. We're just used to giving it to Dave Stewart and Jordi Belair. Sorry. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, uh, this is a situation where the line art and the coloring join together to become greater than the sum of their parts. Definitely. It's a beautiful comic. And it's just a perfect understanding of not only Iron Man, but Tony Stark. And I feel like that's part of what was missing from Dan Slott. Yeah. yeah. From Dan Slott's my, like, my favorite thing about this is that there was not, like, you didn't see the armor wash over him and yeah. a sea of liquid metal. Right. Well, you didn't see any weird pixelated. No. He put on gloves. Yeah. He stretched up the arms. Like, it was just like during the Bob Layton run. I was like. This is exactly what I want from yeah. an Iron Man comic book. Well, and this just felt, I don't feel like we've had a great Tony Stark character written since like Matt Fraction was writing the book, honestly. Yeah. He's yeah, been good. He's been perfectly fine. But I feel like Matt Fraction and Cantwell get this character. They understand that there is a person in the suit that we need to relate to. And he's doing a fantastic job. Yeah, I think we've just we've just been getting a series of stories about Tony Stark reacting to the latest thing. That's it. It's like that's it. Oh no! Right. Uh, uh, it's a oh no! It's a civil war. It's civil war too. Oh right. God! Oh no! It's the Kotati are invading. Yeah. Like in Kota- in Empire, Tony Stark was a mess. Like he was a paranoid mess. I actually didn't mind the way that Al Ewing kind of did that though, because it like the way that Reed, that's a whole different argument. Well, like but. he was suffering. He was like feeling very guilty because right. he believed that there, he believed their sob story, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But like, this is Tony Stark, like just being Tony and it felt really nice. Yeah. I could relate to Tony again. I like that. It's a huge buy for me. The longest comic book that I read this week was detective comics. Number 1,027 from DC. This is written by Pete Tomasi, Brian Michael Bendis, James Tinney in the Four, Matt Fraction, Greg Rucka, Kelly Sudaconic, Marv Wolfman, Grant Morrison, Tom King, Scott Snyder, Dan Jurgens, and Mariko Tamaki, with art by Brad Walker, David Marquez, Chip Zdarsky, Edward Rizzo, Riley Rosmo, Ramita Jr., Emanuela Lupacino, Chris Burnham, Walter Simonson, Ivan Rice, Kevin Nolan, and Dan Mora. Yes. They all wrote stories. This is a 144-page star-studded celebration for Batman's 1,000th appearance in the pages of Detective Comics. There are some fantastic stories here by some very talented creators who obviously love Batman. And I can't imagine what it's like 
for some of these creators to have DC reach out and say, we would like you to write a story for the thousandth appearance of Batman in Detective Comics. I would have cried. Some of the standouts were Tomasi's story. Tinian's story was great. I loved what Fraction did. Morrison had a brilliant story about the silver ghost who was the crime fighter that appeared in Detective 26 that nobody cared about. <laughs> Is that real? Yeah. And it was Batman that appeared in Detective 27. And they sort of show this like whole origin of this character. And he's like, someone's got to fight crime and Gotham and yada, yada, yada. And he's like, who else is going to do it? And he goes to stop a crime and Batman's there doing this kick-ass job. And he's like, all right, fine. I quit. Whatever. <laughs> I will say the Bendis story that featured the whole Bat gang immediately fell into that Bendis trap of making them all sound exactly the same. And it was in that moment where everybody sounded like Brian Michael Bendis that I looked and went, oh yeah, and they're all white too. <laughs> in fact, this story that he wrote has me hoping that he's not taking on a bat project after his Superman tenure. One thing I noticed was how nice it was to read several good just street level detective bat stories. Even the Riley Rosmo and James Tinian, the fourth story with dead man in it that was very supernatural was still a lot of fun and felt more down to earth than a lot of what has been going on with Batman lately, especially with all the cosmic nonsense that Bats finds himself stuck in, in the pages of Justice League and the Dark Knight's metal stuff. This was just an open love letter from all these creators to Batman. It was a blast to read. I really enjoyed it. Even the stuff that I didn't think was great was still really good. And I'm giving this a huge buy it. Yeah. You know, speaking of all that cosmic stuff, uh, you know, there was actually a story, the Ivan Rice story. And I, I don't remember who wrote it actually touched on this idea that Batman just never stops. I think that was Snyder and Rice. You know, the idea that he is just a man stuck in these overwhelming cosmic situations. Right. Uh, and I thought that it was nice that they addressed that. Um, the good thing about these huge, you know, anniversary anthologies is that you don't have to worry about where they fit. Yeah. Uh, and like and I so, think that was the most relaxing part of reading this. Yeah, It was right. Scott Snyder and Ivan Rice wrote that was that I could just, I don't have to worry about anything. Think about anything. It's just Batman punching killer croc or Batman yeah. teaming up with dead man or bat, you know, like I feel like DC has gotten really far away from that. That just easy breezy. Yeah. Let's read a Batman story. Like you can, <laughs> choose, you can choose that they fit or not. Like right. um, you know, with the exception of the uh, generations uh, story by Dan Jurgens, which definitely fits into. Uh, what DC is doing next. Um, they all just kind of take place in this nebulous other time. Yeah. You know, like Tom King and Walt Simonson do that story with Dr. Phosphorus where it's like, haha, I gave you cancer. Uh, and it's like, well, DC never has any obligation to stick to that. <laughs> Not to mention uh, the fact, like, you know, Superman, like the Legion can come back in time and take care of this. Like, give me a break. Sure. <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know, and I'm not going to I'm not going to deduct any points from them for that being the exact way that uh, Ted Knight gets cancer in Starman. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the Bendis story, the, the characters did sound a, a little samey, yeah. uh, which is a trap that he falls into when he writes. Yeah. Large groups of characters. Um, but. Uh, I did like the family aspect of it. I loved 
let me tell you what I loved most of all. It did not shy away from the history. There was no like retroactive Definitely. putting Robin in some ridiculous high tech outfit. It was like short pants, yep. pixie boots. It was Robin. Totally. Uh, even the um, the Matt Fraction and Chip Zdarsky story about I the Joker giving Batman a birthday present every loved month. Loved it. I loved it. It was so good. It goes 22 years into Batman's career. Yeah. DC is not going to commit to telling you Batman's been Batman for 22 <laughs> years. Never, ever, ever. Probably not. Uh, but yeah, I thought across the board, the art was fantastic. I thought the majority of the stories were excellent. And even the stories that I thought were just okay were still pretty good. Right. So uh, this, I assume, was $9.99, right? Yep, $9.99. It was so, $49.99 for the signed 40, one. Sorry. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it is essentially the length of a trade paperback. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, oh, it was a really fun read. It's, it's a lot of, it was a lot of what I love about Batman. This goes back, and we'll talk about it more on Saturday, because I think there is discussion here. But this goes back to more what we were saying about Iron Man, like, this getting back to the character, I feel like they've just gotten so far away from what we love about Batman. And it's just situational Batman, situational Batman, situational Batman. And yes, these were all situations that the stories were in, but it felt like old school Batman. Right. Like, you know, for you and me, our heyday with the character is arguably, you know, the late eighties, early nineties, uh, you know, Alan Grant, Norm Brayfogle, sure, Jim sure. Aparo. I would argue all the Chuck way up Dixon. into the early 2000s, man. Like the Morrison stuff. And like. It, and, it, and while they, they definitely did get event heavy in the 90s, you know, before that, it was just like, yeah, Batman fights the criminal mastermind. Right. Oh, and then in this issue, Dead Man shows up. It, or, you know, it just, these things just happened. Yeah. It, it felt like the Batman that I remember. Right. It, it felt like a Batman story. It, no new villains, no space shit. Just like Batman, Gotham, the villains gallery that you that you know and love and are terrified of, go, you know? Yeah. All right. Finally, my last review is of Stillwater number one from Image Comics. Nobody dies. In the town of Stillwater, that's not just a promise. It's a threat. Ooh. <whistles> Daniel... A perpetual screw-up with anger issues suddenly finds himself the recipient of a mysterious inheritance in the even more mysterious town of Stillwater, a place no one seems to have heard of and isn't on any map. After Daniel and his friend Tony witness a truly chilling murder in broad daylight, they're swept up in a horror that all of the town's inhabitants would kill to keep secret. Writer Chip Zdarsky does it again, delivering a story that hits all of the best small town horror notes. Some of it seems kind of reminiscent of certain films like, you know, the shady sheriff, sure. the townspeople that know too much, but you need serious disappearances. Yeah, no, it's all great. You need it. Yes. Uh, Zdarsky's characterization makes it work. I absolutely adore artist Ramon Perez and his loose line style pairs really well with the almost uh, watercolor esque work of colorist Mike Spicer. Mike Spicer also colored murder Falcon. He is wonderful. Oh yeah. Okay. Stillwater number one hooked me from the moment Daniel and Tony started their ill-fated road trip. I cannot wait to see where it goes from here. Definitely giving it a buy it. Yeah, this is just, it's great horror comic booking 
by two guys, Ramon Perez, friggin' master. And Zadarsky is just in a renaissance right now. Everything the guy is writing is fantastic. The only thing that pisses me off is I'm afraid he's not going to draw as much anymore. And he's a great artist. <laughs> I, I would love to it's see him true. draw more, you know? It's true, but you know what? I just want him to tell stories. No, he, he's, yeah, and he's proven he can tell just about any story he wants. I'm giving this a buy it as well. Great first issue. I love good horror comics. We're moving into the fall where I want to read a bunch of creepy stuff. This is a must buy. We will be right back, but first, a word from our sponsor. We wanted to tell you about Omaha Bound's latest Kickstarter project. Omaha Bound are premier bookbinders that specialize in binding comic books into amazing, one-of-a-kind, hardbound editions, completely customizable to your specifications. Omaha Bound's latest project is a collection of Paul Tobin and Phil Hester's Fringe, originally printed by Caliber Comics in the 1990s and reprinted for the first time collected ever. Oh, by the way, the series never ended. But now you can read the end. This new reprint includes a newly written ending to the story, new spot illustrations by Hester accompanying the new ending, new cover by Phil Hester, and an introduction by Zach Davison. We're going to have a link in the show notes to their Kickstarter where you can see preview art and more. These trade paperbacks are ready to print and are print by order only, so they will be very limited. So you pledge, if you want to own this beautiful collection of early work by Tobin and Hester, you will also get a copy of the Fringe Pencils and Inks. It's a companion piece that has 100 plus pages of original art, sketches, and other artifacts. It's printed in full color, and like I said, they are ready to print. So you order this, and boom, it's shipping right out to you. Plus, you'll also get a copy of the Wretch Omnibus, which collects every Wretch storyline, including a new one by series artist Phil Hester that he did in 2019, and the Wretch Pencils and Inks art book. Go check out their Kickstarter. Get in on four exciting, beautifully curated hardcovers, printing Fringe and the Wretch for the first time with new content. I want to send a huge thanks to Omaha Bound for supporting this show and go support these guys. Contact them if you want to get your hands on these unique collectibles or you want to get your comics bound into a one-of-a-kind hardcover collection. I know on their website they had an X-Factor collection all lined up and the spines lined up with the team showing the the Larry Stroman X-Factor stuff that I love so much. You can find them at omahabound.com. Now, back to the show! Joe Patrick, we've got two weeks of books to pick from this time. Which book wins? What was your book of the week? You know what? It's tough. This is a tough one. Not for me. It it really wasn't for me. Mine is Mine's Detective 1027. It it was just, it was too much fun. It was packed full of so much heart. I loved that Iron Man book. It's a great start, but give me some more. Let's see what we got here. I just love it when all these characters come together and do a big pastiche book like this packed full of content cool covers reminded me what i love about batman and to be quite honest i don't love batman for a little while uh you know what i'm going to give it to iron man just because i already kind of knew that i would enjoy that batman book fair enough just based on you know detective 1000 oh, action sure. 1000 sure. we already knew what we were getting into 
And so I was expecting to enjoy at least most of it. That Iron Man book was a surprise, like a total surprise. I like not I was, for me, man. I was expecting to love that too. Because well, like, I mean, I'm I'm a fan of the creators, but you know, I just I was so happy to enjoy an Iron Man story again. Fair enough. So I'm giving it to Iron Man. I got problems, you do too. But Joe, Joe's got issues. Hey nerds, it's Joe, the casual comics guy, calling in with my onomatopoeia of the week. Uh, This is from High Heaven, number one from Ahoy Comics. This is the sound a vending machine makes in heaven when it's dropping some snacks on a dude. That's my onomatopoeia of the week. Thanks, nerds. See you later. Joe's got issues. That was far and away the best produced onomatopoeia of the week we've ever had, but I can't repeat it because uh, I'm not really sure what it was. It was yeah, like, I don't really <laughs> thank you, Joe, for that onomatopoeia of the week. And if you want to submit an onomatopoeia of the week, you can post it to any of our social media accounts. You can send it in an email to two at gmail.com like Joe did, or better yet, Call us. Make the noise. 402-819-4894. Tell us where it came from. We'll play it on the show just like Joey. This is his second one he sent us. Yeah, he's on top of it. Kid's on a roll. He's got to be a millionaire by now. I mean, come on. You guys want to get rich, right? Come on. (laughs) That is it for reviews. And now it's time to head up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum where we're gearing up for Oktoberfest. And sampling the Dwarven Ale we brewed with a little help from the Nornstone we picked up at that Norse estate sale last week. His gods are dropping dead all the time and selling all this shit. You know, what are you going to (laughs) do? Now, I am not a big beer guy myself, but I know that it's not supposed to smell like blood. Chill out, brother. It's an amber. They're red. Don't worry about it. Hmm. Well, you can sample it first, then, while I tell the kids about my must-read pick for next week. This is really your pick. This is where you're going. It's where I'm going. And why I'll do you keep why. doing this to yourself? <laughs> I'll explain <laughs> all why. Right, all right. My pick for next week is Dark Knight's Death Metal Speed Metal One Shot. Yes, there are two colons in that title, and I'm not sure that's how grammar works. <laughs> it's from DC Comics. It's written by Joshua Williamson. It's got art by someone. Uh, the, the, Somebody the is definitely th- drawing it. We can confirm that. The, <laughs> so. the fun thing about about things not coming from about DC books not coming from Diamond anymore is that they don't give a shit about updating their listings. Yeah, you don't need to know. Just you want it, just buy it. Yeah, give yeah. us your money. Uh, it's forty eight pages for five ninety nine. Here's your solicit. It's the drag race from hell, and this one shot tie into Dark Knight's Death Metal taking place after Death Metal number three. The Darkest Night is after Wally West and his Doctor Manhattan powers. Thankfully, Wally has backup in the form of Barry Allen, Jay Garrick, and Wallace West. It's a knockdown, drag out race through the wastelands as the Flash family tries to stay steps ahead of the Darkest Night and his lightning nights. That's okay. a lot of nights. Okay. Wallace West. Yes, that is uh, that is the new 52 Wally West. Wallace? His name is Wallace. That's how they tell them apart. There's Wally and Wallace. Oh, was this the black kid? Yes. Okay. African-American boy that became the kid Flash. Wallace West. I forgot about New 52 Wallace. Yes. 
Uh, I mean, fun fact, Wally's full name is also Wallace. That's that, just not what they call it. That, I don't think it's, I think Wally's full name is Walrus. <laughs> Wal- Walrus. Walrus West. Yes. Walrus West, which is very difficult I mean, to say. That's what I always thought it was anyway. Walrus yeah, right. <laughs> There are alternate timeline. There's an alternate timeline version where his name is Walter, Walter West. Okay. Uh, All right. So this is my pick because it is the true conclusion of writer Josh Williamson's run on the flash. That's almost sad. And he like, not, no, his (laughs) final, his final issue of the flash also comes out next week. But he said, look, you need to pick up the death, the speed metal one shot because I'm doing some stuff. Oh, and he has been working very hard to kind of restore the things about the flash that we have always loved. He definitely Namely has. the family uh, redeeming Wally. Listen here. Spoilers for last week's issue of the flash. They revealed professor zoom, the reverse flash because he is powered by the negative speed force. He has the ability to negatively influence the thoughts of his enemies. What? Yes. He's able to plant suggestions in the heads of his enemies. Like using he's the mildly telepathic kind of thing? Or, kind of, yeah. yeah like hypnotism. Okay. And so in Heroes in Crisis, it's Professor Zoom's fault that Wally flipped out and tried to cover up the deaths instead of just saying it was an accident. All right. I'm okay with them cleaning that up. That's good. Yes, that is a and mess. I was like, you know what? I don't care how nonsensical it is. Thank you, Joshua Williams. That is a mess that needed to be cleaned up. So um I want to see if he's able to redeem Wally. Uh, even further. I want to see how he closes out his run with the Flash family. I could care less about the connection to death metal. For me, it's all about these individual characters and right. that's why it's my pick. Okay. That's fair. So Joe Patrick had a lot of feelings and emotions about his pick. I picked mine because I think the character kicks ass. I'm picking the juggernaut. Number one, it's written by <laughs> Fabian Nicea and Ron with art by Ron Garney. This is from Marvel. I forgot to mention it's 32 pages for three ninety nine, And here's your solicit ready or not. Okay. Check this out. It's not N O T. Huh? It's yeah, yeah. N-A-U-T, like the juggernaut. You're right. All right, fuck off. Here yeah. he comes, a mystic gem, a force of overwhelming power. Nothing can stop the juggernaut except himself. Another building falls. Kane Marchio is done letting others pick up the pieces of the things he's destroyed. And I can tell you who wrote it again, but we know who it is. They team up to take the unstoppable juggernaut in a new, bold, direction it sounds like they're trying to kind of make the juggernaut a good guy Mm, i don't know or he's tired of being a bad guy i love good guy juggernaut i love it now with that said i also love bad guy juggernaut i just love this character and ron garney is an exceptional artist that has gotten better over the years he went through a phase where he was kind of but he's gotten so good and I love the way that he draws the Juggernaut. Nicesia is very much a 90s throwback guy, but he still writes good stuff. This is not going to be like a Rob Leefield brings you snake eyes type bullshit. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. I think this is going to be fun. I want it to be fun. The character has not been around in Marvel for quite a while. And the Juggernaut is a kick-ass bad guy that we just that needs to be around. 
Bring him back. This is stupid. Well, and this was supposed to come out months ago. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I'm glad to see this finally coming out. I love this creative team. I also love the Juggernaut. This should be a good time. Yeah. The THN trade of the week goes to Old Gods and New, a companion to Jack Kirby's Fourth World. It's a trade paperback from Tomorrow's Publishing. Uh, Tomorrow's Publishing also published uh, books by our good friend and frequent contributor Jason Sachs. It's compiled and edited by John Morrow. It's 160 pages for $26.95. Here's your solicit. For its 80th issue, the Jack Kirby Collector Magazine presents a double-sized 50th anniversary examination of Kirby's magnum opus, spanning the pages of four different comics starting in 1970, The New Gods, Forever People, Mr. Miracle, and Jimmy Olsen, the sprawling quote unquote epic for our times was cut short midstream, leaving fans wondering how Jack would have resolved the confrontation between evil dark side of apocalypse and his son, Orion of new Genesis. This companion to that fourth world series looks back at Jack Kirby's own words, as well as those of assistants, Mark Vanier and Steve Sherman inker, Mike Royer and publisher Carmine Infantino to determine how it came about where it was going and how Kirby would have ended it before it was prematurely canceled by DC comics. It also examines Kirby's use of gods in Thor and other strips prior to the fourth world, how they influenced his DC epic and affected later series like the Eternals and Captain Victory with an overview of hundreds of Kirby's creations like Big Barda, Boom Tubes and Granny Goodness and post Kirby uses of his concepts, no fourth world fan will want to miss it. Holy craps. Yeah, I, I want it. This is one that like when I can't sleep, I want to get super high, sit up and read this shit, man. <laughs> like this is going to be awesome. <laughs> Tomorrow's puts out great companion books. Great. Oh, yeah. And it's like this is the comic nerds inside baseball. Like, oh, yeah. If you want to get like, deep, if you want to go like way down that rabbit hole, this is where you go. These guys kick ass at this stuff. Like if you're looking for a silly story with flashy art, that'll be over in 120 pages. Look elsewhere. Well, better this yet. This is for. If you're looking at why that silly story with flashy art that was only 120 pages made such a mark, this is where you go. Sure, <laughs> you <know? yeah. laughs> but this is like hardcore nerd shit for hardcore nerds. Yeah. I am buying this. Before you drink yourself into a nude stupor this Oktoberfest, be sure to hit up your local comic shop and add these comics to your list so you can read along at home and let us know what you're reading too. Over at our Facebook page, where every Wednesday you can find your official THN reading list if you want to play along. Who the hell is that guy? With Ultraman making his Marvel debut, it only seemed right to call upon the official THN comics historian who doesn't put that on his business card because it's probably not something he wants to brag about. Mr. Jason Sachs is here to tell you kids who the hell is Ultraman. Hi, I'm Jason Sachs, host of the Classic Comics Cavalcade podcast. Welcome to a little segment I like to call Who the F is This Guy? Marvel just released Ultraman number one, telling the rebooted story of Japan's favorite kaiju fighting superhero. But where did Ultraman come from? 
And why should you care about him anyway? As it turns out, Ultraman has a long and kind of fascinating history. Ultraman debuted on Japanese TV in July 1966. It was a sort of sequel to a previous Japanese TV series called Ultra Q, which is featured in the backup stories of Rise of Ultraman. The Ultraman series ran 39 surprisingly great episodes. They tell the story of the Heroic Science Patrol, a group of ordinary Japanese humans whose job it is to save the world from alien invasions. They do their job well, but when Shin Hirata, one of the humans, is nearly killed, the heroic alien Ultraman saves his life and kind of lives inside Shin's body, sort of like Shazam or Captain Marvel. The original show is available on YouTube and is actually surprisingly terrific. Though the special effects are primitive, kind of on the level of a Godzilla movie, the low budget of the show forced the producers to get creative, create some unique stories, and allow the characters to grow. Binging the original Ultraman is the perfect cure for these terrible times. I had a blast watching it this week. Maybe best of all, the final episode of Ultraman delivers an awesome cliffhanger. And here, I'm giving spoilers for a show which is over 50 years old. In which we discover our hero was part of a force of alien protectors, kind of like the Green Lantern Corps. That there are many more Ultraman of different shapes and sizes out there in the universe. The last 50 plus years have seen those heroes join together, in one form or another, to fight evil monster invasions. The immediate sequel series, Ultra 7, is equally as wonderful. In fact, there's an Ultraman series for nearly every taste and approach. Google an excellent article on Den of Geek to learn about all the reboots and resurrections. I'm intrigued by the extremely dark version from the early 1970s, but you might want to watch the late 70s Hanna-Barbera version. Ultraman's also hugely influential and is considered kind of the perfect example of the tokusatsu genre of monster fighting, which includes the Power Rangers, Kamen Rider, and Garo. Most recently, Netflix ran a new Ultraman series last year. Those 13 episodes show the Ultraman costume moving to Shin Hirata's son Shinjiro and includes quite a few Easter eggs for long-term fans. There's an alien in the show I found endlessly intriguing, and for those of us close to the father's age and the son's age, there's a lot of older guys being tough, which I love. Ultraman has been resurrected, rebooted, reformed, and remade repeatedly over the years. Kinda sounds like a Marvel character, doesn't he? Excelsior! That is it for THN 590. Next time on the show, the Cosmic Long Box is back, and we're reviewing fifth week event comics, and we're taking a look. It's in a book to review Tom Scioli's Jack Kirby biography. Real quick, Joe Patrick, for these nerds that don't know, because they're not old men like us, what the hell's a fifth week? Uh, so back in the day, uh, in the 90s and, and uh, 2000s, we'll say the early 2000s. It was before that, too, wasn't it? Um, you know, I don't remember they. I don't remember them making a big deal of it. Okay. But uh, there used to be on the on the certain months of the year that had a fifth Wednesday, uh, which would mean a kind of lull in the comic industry's very regular four week shipping schedule. Uh, Marvel and DC, mostly DC, would create these events that all came out on the fifth week of the month. Yeah, not like a summer event. 
Not like a company-wide event. A bullshit event to sell books on that fifth week. I mean, it's still an event, (laughs) but... Uh, Yeah, and so, like, one example of such an event would have been, uh, you know, the Tangent Comics universe uh, from DC. Well, we'll get there. Don't worry, we'll do it next week. Yeah, you know, so, yeah, do yourself a favor. Google uh, comic book fifth week events. It's going to be a good time. I am going full random on this, and I can't wait to dive in. Fair enough. Until such time, Joe Patrick, I need you to give these kids a new question of the week. Yes, sir. This week's question was submitted by Lord Stephen Fino, the THN Master of Coin. He says, I hate plaid in comics. Whenever an artist gives a character a plaid piece of clothing, they almost never draw the pattern themselves. They just copy and paste a plaid background into the art, creating the eternal plaid which always looks the exact same no matter how a character is positioned or how the clothes are falling on their bodies. So what is a minor nitpick in comic art or writing that was pointed out to you and now you can never unsee it? Love this. This will be fun. Hey, if you guys have a question of the week that you'd like to submit, please uh, post it to the forums. There is a question of the week uh, sub form there. You can also send an email to twitternerd at gmail.com post it on Twitter, post it on Facebook. You know where to find us. It's not a big deal. We are all over the dang place. It's true. Cover to Cover is back every Saturday at 10.30 a.m. live on our Facebook page, and it is the new home for our nerd news segment. So call us at 402-819-4894 or shoot an MP3 of your answers to twoheadednerd at gmail.com. You could and will be internet famous just like Stephen Fino. We might even give you a job. You know, quite we, possibly. We made him master of coin. It's true. And now we don't have to worry about money. Remember, though, we need you to keep it to two minutes or less. We've got a lot of air to share with the other nerds out there in Internet land. If you're new to the show, you can't understand a word of it, and you think we're pretty much just making it up as we go. You're right. But I assure you, it's only because you just haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital long box archive at twitternerd.com. Hosting that many episodes, it ain't cheap. So we want to thank donors like Blake Kaiser. God damn it, Blake. Thank you, Blake. You sweet bastard. Thank you, Blake. Thank you. Uh, Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to fan-favorite writer Mark Wade, who is returning to DC Comics for the first time since 2008 this December. That's that's like 25 years. Where do you, sir? I think you're right. I don't know. I mean, we don't know. We don't really know how to tell. Where do you, sir? Let's hope that it is the start of bigger and better things. Please, Mark Wade, save us. Until next time. Save us from what's happening at DC. True believers, remember to pre-order your comics. Your retailer might just tell you that you had a pair of twins that nobody ever knew about. This is the Two-Headed Nerd. Signing off.